0: Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss
1: improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Mariciello.
0: Hello and welcome back, friends. On today's episode, I'm joined by Nathan Gould. Nathan is a psychotherapist who is actually joining us all the way from the UK. He runs a private practice at the Drylington Health Hub. And he specializes in areas dealing with anger, anger management, and anxiety. So uh, that's actually what we talked to Nathan about today. We were diving into the details of anger issues, and you know how it lives within all of us, and how sometimes anger likes to rear its head. In this episode, we not only discuss how anger manifests in our lives, we talk about how it affects the people around us, can affect our jobs, our lifestyle, and we also looked a little bit deeper at who anger is affecting on a daily basis we often have this image of you know what an angry person looks like and yet with nathan's experience he dives in a little bit deeper into that person that seems pleasant is always willing to help out and yet is kind of simmering underneath the surface so we got into some really cool topics in this conversation and i hope you get something out of it and enjoy Hello, good morning, or I guess where you are Nathan. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here today.
1: Pleasure to be here with you.
0: Now I, I, I love uh, this is a, an experiment for me and it's turning out to be fantastic already. I searched on Facebook because I knew I wanted to do an episode um, regarding anger, anger management and all this. So I searched on Facebook and your Facebook group popped up and there's something in the realm of like 42,000 people who are now in that group and it's very active. I reached out to you and here we are. But I really, I don't know, I barely know anything about you. So I'm, I'm really interested to find out, you know, how this whole thing came about. So I was wondering if you can kind of start us off by maybe talking a, a little bit about, I understand that you are a psychotherapist. Indeed, yes. Uh, So what kind of inspired you to get into psychotherapy, but then eventually move into this form of like transactional therapy?
1: Okay, so um, in terms of wanting to be a psychotherapist, it's kind of something I was always really, really interested in, Um, right back to you know being a teenager. So the idea of what makes people tick, you know, why people act the way they do, even when it kind of seems like it doesn't make sense in the outside of watching things. Um, so way back, oh, I'm feeling old now, Jason, but way back, it would have been in the 1980s. I kind of looked around doing, um, some counseling training and at the time, um, so I would have been in my mid twenties and the the place I went to said, yeah, you can do, but we really like you to be a little bit older. Um, Hmm. more like in your thirties before you start training. So that kind of made sense to me. Um, so I put it on a back burner straight away. And then I started working in, in pro sport in a marketing capacity. So I was working in Premier League football. Um, I actually worked for the NFL Europe league, which was around for a few years over in Scotland and stuff that was really fun and interesting. And to an extent all this, you know, goes on the back burner, cause I'm having so much fun working in a, mm-hmm. you know, a great sport for guy, you know, a great place for a guy to work in, in pro sport. And I got into my 40s and had a bit of the classic, um, I guess, midlife crisis thinking, well, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but can I see myself doing this for another 20, 30 years? And the answer was a resounding no. And I was, you know, watching something on the news and the whole idea of being a psychotherapist just came back. And, you know, we kind of went from there, got the training. Twelve years later, here I am working with anger.
0: (laughs) Wow. So you actually kind of jumped into it a little bit, I don't want to say later in life, because 40s is not late in life, but yeah. it's very it's
2: impressive.
1: Not, yeah, well, I was going to say, um, on the kind of course that I did, I mean, most people were in their 40s. It was very much, um, I think, a second a second life career. So mm. it wasn't that unnormal in the kind of context of where I was training.
0: Amazing. So did you jump right into working in, in anger management off the get-go?
1: well not at all in fact you know i've had quite a lot of resistance all along on this particular one um i think it's again this idea of a happy accident that we touched on earlier and one of those happy accidents it reveals more about me than perhaps i ever wanted to Mm. let on about myself so part of my training is that we have to work with couples and we have to work with groups it's not just individuals and um you probably won't realize Jason, but getting therapy groups in the UK is really, really difficult. People just do not like the idea of sharing in a group. It's kind of not the British mm. thing. So whereas we see i mean, I don't know how true it is, but we see, um, kind of American Canadian culture on television, where group therapy and 12 step programs are really, really huge here. It's just like, don't share my crap in front of others. <laughs> um right. so one of the things I noticed is I was getting a lot of um because I was doing analysis on my marketing and I was getting lots of people inquiring about wanting anger therapy mm. and not following through. So I kind of thought, you know, here's where we can you know, there's a gap in the market in a sense, um, to run a a six week anger program to try and help these people that otherwise aren't coming through to me. And it ticks my box of having to run some group therapy. So I mean, I did a lot of research, came up with a kind of simple program that would that was aimed to help people straight away. And it kind of really, 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 really flew from there. um, To the stage where we've got this Facebook group with, you know, tens of thousands of people in it. But the other thing I noticed was there was a particular pattern of angry men that were coming.
2: Hmm.
1: And, you know, I realised actually I was looking in the mirror. Yeah. So These are the guys who don't really think they're angry. In fact, you know, one of the questions I always ask you, Jason, in the first session is who are you? How would you describe yourself? Really, really tricky question. I can mm-hmm. see you, smiling you think about it. And what I realised is, you know, without without fail, almost these guys were going, I'm a good guy. I am Mr. Nice Guy. I'm your neighbour who will fix your car, mow your lawn. Yet they're in my therapy room because other people perceive them to be angry. Mm-hmm. And I did it at the same time, kind of think, yeah, that's really me. Mm. <laughs> Jane, show your, you know, your journey of doing something external always mirrors something that's kind of needed internally too. It's
0: really interesting. At uh, one point when I was uh, so my backgrounds in mindfulness and everything and, and there was yep. um, a road to mental readiness program that they rolled out. I don't know if it's in the UK, but they rolled it out here for first responders. And with one of the local police stations, I went in almost kind of like a, a consulting role, because one of the hmm. elements in the road to mental readiness, they do a bit of a guided meditation in it, but they le- invited me to sit in on the entire process. And the particular day that I was there, they were pitching it to or they were giving this course to all the supervisors and and, uh, everyone in the higher ups levels. And they weren't holding anything back. Like some of the questions that they would ask in the road to mental readiness is asking like, how do we recognize, you know, mental instability within some of our subordinates and all this kind of stuff. And these supervisors, these sergeants and everything, you can tell when they were almost kind of starting to get triggered with some of their own things because there was statistics in it they didn't recognize themselves of having any problems but it would say like okay well if you're having more than seven drinks a week you may be using alcohol as a means of numbing or as a crutch or something like that and then they talked about even like excessive workout patterns or you know diving so deeply into your work and all this and it was amazing just to be an observer and watching all these people who are we'd like to hope in, in a position where they don't let their anger rule them. yep. And yet there were so many like, well, no, no, I, I don't have a drinking problem just because I want to come home and have, you know, three or four beers a night or something like that. And and you can see that it wasn't until they almost felt like backed into a corner a little bit that some of that anger started coming out. It was almost like a bit of denial there. yep. that was kind of like setting the anger off in the first place, which you'd think the denial setting off the anger would be the first step to awareness. But denial can be a pretty powerful thing, yeah, I think, right? Absolutely. So absolutely. we were talking a little bit before we jumped on this about, like, where would be one of the first. First steps if we were going to, you know, somebody's telling us that we need to go deal with our anger or we're starting to recognize that we're hurting those around us or something like that. Like, how do we start start this process of, of dealing with it?
1: that's a really good question jason and it actually um you know it fits really beautifully with the story you've just told about the the first respondents because i guess for most people the first thing that happens is somebody else tells them Mm. so that goes on for quite a long time i think before we or before me them others agree or start to think actually there is a problem because for most angry people it's I'm not the problem. Somebody else is, mm. if it wasn't for that other guy, if it wasn't for that idiot, if it wasn't for that bully, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be angry. So the first thing is very much a awareness that there is a problem. And of course, if your wife, your kids, your boss is telling you there's a problem, it's really useful to hear that because they have a problem with you. So you, I kind of have a problem about that. Mm-hmm people tend to come to anger management either because they're going to lose their relationship or lose their job Mm -hmm. so it's a kind of reactive response you still
0: have people coming to anger management but haven't fully accepted they just think well okay they want me here so I'm going to be here so there's actually a big step between walking in the door and accepting as well
1: yeah and what I tend to find is in the kind of group anger management programs you get a lot more of that Mm -hmm. I have a really vivid memory Uh, It was the second ever anger group I I did. So it was a long, long time ago. And I'm sitting in the room waiting for people to turn up and I get a phone call from one of the participants. And he is, you know, swearing and cursing, there's F words, there's all sorts of words flying there. And effectively what he's doing, he's blaming his wife for the fact he's going to be late. And it's her fault. And she deliberately sabotaged it etc 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 so i'm kind of you know that's all fine just just get here doesn't matter get here safe so he's driving phoning shouting you know that's kind of not safe so Mm -hmm. put your phone down get here safe and he comes in and he's again he does the same thing in the group and i don't need to be here it's not about me it's you know it's my wife it's it's everybody else everybody else has causing the problem So one of the things I really like to do in that first session is find that motivation. What is it that's going to make it tick for you? And at some point, um, in the, in the first session, he's telling me about his two daughters who I think they're like five, six, seven years old and how heartbreaking it was to see his daughter scared of him when he was shouting. And kind of, that was the hook,
2: mm-hmm. so
1: even if we accept everybody else in the world, isn't, you know, an asshole, mm-hmm. how do you learn to deal with that without upsetting your daughter, who you are clearly in love and attached to. Yeah. So sometimes it's about shifting my frame of reference to accept their view of the world and go, okay, even if it is everybody else, you're the one who's sitting here. You're the one who's going to lose your job. You're the one who may lose seeing your daughter. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you better deal with the world in that case?
0: Well, and it's so much easier to point the finger in other directions because as soon as we start pointing it towards ourselves, like oh man, that sounds like so much work. <laughs> so yeah. I can, you yep. know, from my own perspective, I can totally see, you know, why we're maybe psychologically predisposed to pointing outwardly. What it reminds yep. me of, um, a Buddhist proverb. One of my one of my favorite. And it talks about a uh, martial art master owns a monastery at the top of a mountain and he's known around the land for being like world-renowned martial artist. And one day along comes a, a challenger and he's he just barges right into the temple and in front of his students, he challenges the master to a fight. And the challenger, he's angry. He's, you know, had to do all the work to get there to challenge this man. Yeah. And... In front of all the students, the master says, no, thank you. I'd like to just get on with my teaching. And the master says, no, you prove yourself to be a coward. And only a coward will refuse the challenge. And, you know, you're a a phony and all this. And he's just like pointing, pointing, pointing outwardly. outwardly. And the master just said, no, thank you. You're welcome to stay for tea, but I'm going to get on with my my training and everything. And now the students are starting to get angry. It's like that anger is infectious. And like, come on, master, don't let them treat you like that. And we know that you could take them. You don't need to worry about it. And then eventually, the master continued to refuse. So then the challenger stormed off even angrier than they were beforehand, you know, shouting all kinds of negative things towards the master. So the student said, Master, why didn't you accept the challenge? You could have taken him. And the master just turned and said, if someone tries to give you a gift and you don't accept it, who does that gift belong to? And the student stopped for a second. They said, well, I guess it would belong to the person trying to give it to you. And he said, well, anger is no different. And yeah. it's that like we have that power to be in control, even if there's all these other people who are doing the stuff to us, we have a, an ability. We we have a lot more, I think, control than we give ourselves credit for sometimes. But it's that feeling of lack of control that becomes an issue.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I think um, what's really interesting with anger is that the lack of control itself can be the trigger.
0: Mm hmm. So. Uh, one of the areas I know anger prop pops up a lot is with like road rage and and that yeah. kind of thing. But we yep. find that there's some in your work. Do you find that there's some common common situations where it tends to kind of rear up for people?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> I guess road rage is um, ubiquitous and universal. That yeah, pretty much everybody has a bit of that. So I guess when you talk about Road rage, what immediately comes to my mind, actually, is the link between the way we we think about a situation mm. and how we then respond. So when somebody, you know, cuts us up, but it, it does happen, um, too regularly around here, actually, <laughs> our response is something negative about the other guy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He's an idiot. But also, he did that deliberately. hmm he's somehow making a fool of me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He somehow thinks that I'm the idiot that he could put in front of, you know, the truth is he was going to do it to anybody, mm-hmm. but we personalize it. And in that thinking process that personalizes and somehow makes us less than or one down sits the anger. Mm-hmm. Cause if my response is he drives past is to think, oh, he's going to die shortly driving like that. Right. Or to think, Hey, he's late for tea. He's going to get nagged by his wife. Yeah, Or him. We don't get angry. We go, you know, hey, whatever. Right. But when we do the hey, he's mugging me off. He's disrespecting me. Straight away, we go to that place of anger. Well, I'm thinking about we, we not you know, any of that,
0: right? And thinking of of okay, well, I hope you get to where you're going safely because you're driving like an idiot or whatever. Yeah. I've been in the car with people who get passed and like passing is a system that basically suggests the speed that you're going at is slower than the speed i want to go at for whatever reason maybe i'm late for tea or dinner or whatever you want to call it um so i'm gonna pass you but again we take it personally or a lot of people do and i've been in the car with someone who's been passed then like tromps on the gas starts speeding up to try to give the other person a piece of their mind and almost cause an accident themselves because of their response to this person yeah. who is quote unquote driving unsafely. And yeah. it just, it's, it's mind blowing how these blinders can go on. Sometimes they don't let us see that our own response to what we think is unsafe. And you know, they're, they're getting, you're, they're throwing anger at us and everything, but then we just, we just act as a mirror. We let that anger or whatever they're doing, penetrate us and act out on it.
1: Yep. Exactly.
0: I guess this comes back to that awareness piece is how do we start to bring ourselves in a situation where we're more aware of how we let the actions of others influence
1: us? Yeah. Um, which is again, you know, it's a really important <laughs> starting point to this this journey. I like the um, um sorry, the guy's names just escape me. Um Thich Nhat Hanh, the <laughs> Yeah. So he's he's got a lovely book on uh, I think it's called Calling the Flames of Anger Buddhist Wisdom for dealing with anger really nice book um, and part of what he talks about is your use of language.
2: So
1: mm. what we tend to say is I am angry, in a way that defines our totality almost. It's not just I'm shouting or I'm doing something. I suddenly am this this big emotion. And To reframe that to use, you know, I notice there is anger in me. I notice a part of me is angry. I notice there is anger going on. That mm. really depersonalizes the process of behaviour or the process of feeling mm. from your identity as a human. So important, I think it makes it smaller. When it's our identity, it almost feels too big to tackle. I'm an angry man, you know. Huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel a bit angry right now. It's a hugely different thing to try and tackle much, much simpler, much more bite sized
2: And
0: I feel like when you when you frame it like that, too, if you can vocalize or verbalize that to a loved one or something, now all of a sudden, it's not like there's you in this state. And then there's me in this state, it can almost be like, hey, there's this thing trying to creep its way in here can we yeah. work together almost in this situation too sometimes and instead of feeling so isolated and I'm angry that now I can almost bring in some allies into my situation to deal with this thing that's creeping into my emotions and, and that kind yeah. of thing. I, I like that just slight framework shift
1: yeah it's it can be enormous and you know I'm angry kind of normally it either followed by it implies it's also something to do with you Right. anger becomes distancing mm-hmm. where you hit the nail on the head is actually you want to invite collaboration especially if it's a you know a loved one
0: when I, i've done some work with uh this is just reminding me i've done some work with couples in um uh, you know different sexual trauma and stuff like this as well and speaking of that language piece i've heard how much of an impact it makes to say like if you're in a relationship and a partner says like i don't want have sex with you or something like that, versus saying like, right now, I'm feeling triggered. And my traumas are not letting me, you know, it's it's this different, like, I want to, I really want to, but the things that I'm working on are holding me back. And now all of a sudden, it's like, not me hurting your feelings saying, I don't want to engage in this act with you. But it's rather like, I really wish like you and I were on the same page. But you know my my trauma or my parasympathetic nervous system or whatever is happening right now it's it doesn't and then we can work together to try to overcome this instead of just yeah you 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 you're making me angry right now
1: yeah absolutely that's a really you know I love your example of of I guess using therapist talk talking about the process rather than talking about what's actually happening in a kind of behavioral way so Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm feeling triggered, yeah. I'm feeling X, Y, Z.
0: And one of the things we talked about before we jumped on the podcast is, you know, we talked about um, nonviolent communication a little bit, which coincidentally yeah. is a book we've both, uh, or something we both kind of read into. Yeah. But there's this, this whole piece that we mentioned about like not trying to make assumptions, not taking things personally, but ultimately just breaking down, what are the needs in this situation that are not being met and when we can slowly start to take out some of that that personal aspect to it like it, being objective in a situation especially the closer people yeah. are to us certainly very challenging to do like uh my my wife is an extremely passionate person is the best way to say this because she's probably- <laughs> to this podcast she's an yeah. extremely passionate person and there were certain subjects where we would we would start talking about it. I can see that she's like all the physiological signs. She's her shoulders are coming up her, you know, face is looking a little more flushed and she's uh, raising her volume and everything. And, you know, <laughs> maybe not the best idea to try to do your own kind of work on your, your spouse. But um, eventually I was so impressive. It started with me saying, like, do you feel like you're getting a little triggered right now? And that would often in the beginning trigger her more. But the more that we were able to talk openly and honestly, and for her to understand that when I ask that, I'm not saying you're being triggered, I'm not um, trying to escalate the situation, but rather trying to be open as a safe place for us to like have that dialogue. Eventually, mm-hmm. when I said like, do you feel like you're getting triggered in this conversation? She you know, wouldn't be able to necessarily come all the way from 100 back down, but she's like, damn it. Yes. Okay, maybe a few minutes, we'll come back to it. And like that was huge growth in, in our relationship, but that is a challenging step to, to get to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there was something else I think really important in that um, really nice story, Jason, is that it isn't about coming down from 100 to naught. It's mm. that's the kind of fantasy people have.
2: Mm. If
1: you know you can come down from 100 to 90, then you can do 90 to 80 and you can do 80 to 70 in steps Mm -hmm. once you know you have some control on your level of stimulation or triggeredness you've got a breakthrough but don't expect it to magically disappear Mm -hmm. people seem to want to think you know the myth isn't it that they can be some zen-like creation that's never touched by the world around them which actually is you know I'm, i'm guessing you'd also think is a it's not how it works in terms of becoming enlightened beings either we we still feel you know mm-hmm. it's not about not feeling it's about how we deal with that and our sense of presence and our congruence with the universe i think i love that you
0: you brought that up because that's a very mis uh, a misunderstanding that's often there with people who have spent a lot of time with mindfulness and meditation for yeah. me my outward expression very seldom um would look anything or i would almost say like never would look like anger but would there be times where the feelings and and this is the thing a lot of people don't always understand the difference between emoting and emotions and the feelings that are actually inside of our brain because yeah well i think sometimes like oh look at this asshole or something like that yeah totally but it's developing that that filter that momentary pause where it's like okay what's actually taking place here? What's happening in this situation? Why am I getting stressed out? And so often, yeah, when, when we look at it, like one of the biggest things I talk about with mindfulness and acceptance and compassion is the fact that we're all these walking bags of trauma. And we recognize ourselves to be so complex, but we often just want to take people right at face value that, you know, if they're passing me, they're passing me because they're, you know, an asshole or, or something like that. Whereas, yeah. I look at my own experience and think, I remember one time in particular, I was working my way through college. I think I was at a stage where I was working at Home Depot at the time. And they had told me if I was late for work one more time, I was gonna lose my job. And I just could not wake up from my alarm clock. But um, if I was late, they were. I was gonna lose my job and i needed that job to pay my way through school it was like the most important and i was thinking about like how disappointed my father may be in me if all of a sudden this is my first real job and i lose it and that was what was on my mind i wasn't thinking about all the people i was passing as i was going like a buck 60 trying to get my way to work and now again like you say i'm thinking about okay the safety elements of going 160 kilometers and you know i don't know an 80 zone or something like that but at the same time, now I see that person, I think, OK, this person obviously thinks it's important that they get to where they're going in, in, in a timely fashion. But that piece around control, too. Now, all of a sudden, if that person needs to get to where they're going because it's really important to them and somebody else is standing in their way or going slowly or something, how often does our anger manifest as a metaphor? It's like, I feel like I don't have control in my marriage. I don't feel like I don't have control in my job. Car is the one place I should have control. And this person's trying to take it away from me. Like, how often do you see that in your work where it's just these like having to unravel these metaphors of, of anger that comes through?
1: Yeah, that's again something really nice there. I mean, particularly with the cars and the road rage, because we do have this thing about cars are our, our place of control, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd not kind of thought like that, but you, you're spot on, Jason.
0: It makes you think uh, about uh, how you're driving the car now a little bit. <laughs>
1: oh, I'm getting a bit worried. Um, of course, the other thing I was thinking as you were talking is I'm always doing the right speed. Right. Well, he's too fast and she's too slow. I'm right. the one. Right. But yeah. Um, I, I love to use metaphor in a, in a group mm-hmm. because that that sense of image and concept that's probably flowing from our uh i always get which way around the brain is when it's more creative but Mm -hmm. i think i mean the left side of our uh, no i think i mean the right side of our brain Mm -hmm. um often has a meaning to it before we've been able to put it into words right so you know when we're trying to talk in in, in, in words, in, in detailed communication, as we so often do in therapy, it kind of assumes there's already been a level of processing so mm-hmm. that we can verbalize it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas that metaphor that somebody comes up with can be sitting there before we processed it. So it allows us to go deeper, more quickly. And whenever I grab a metaphor, what I'll tend to do is I'll run with the metaphor that the client brings, but then push it to its limits And it always has something really interesting Mm -hmm. and powerful to say about that client. It's always individual, but you know, it's, it's a great way of getting somewhere very important, very quickly.
0: You just made me think too, like when we're also speaking in metaphors, it, it again, doesn't feel as personal. It doesn't feel like you're trying to point at something specific that i've done but now if i relate it to you know because you're talking to someone who studied a lot of buddhism and yoga philosophy and everything is 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 metaphors and analogies everywhere but it allows you to see yourself in a different situation see yourself in a, you know and this may be bad but sometimes when i'm working with people i will create fictional clients, fictional couples that I've worked with, that runs a very similar parallel to Mm. what this individual is going through and let them almost like give advice to themselves sometimes like, yeah, what would you what would you say in this situation? But do you find that people have a hard time opening up to that when it's a group setting versus a one on one?
1: Well, (laughs) the interesting thing is, despite what I said earlier about it being hard to get groups, Mm. once people are in them, they love them. really Um, so no, once, you know, once they've been to a couple of sessions and it's, everything's warmed up and, you know, people are starting to talk and open up. Actually, the thing that becomes most powerful is the sharing, right? Both, both the sharing of your material, but also the, the witnessing of other people's, Mm -hmm. um, because it becomes normalizing. Look, when I, as a therapist say, Hey, that's kind of normal. I see loads of clients like that. People don't hear it. Mm-hmm. When you're sitting in a room and you're sitting next to Joe Bloggs who's got a story just like yours and you go, hey, that's exactly the same as me or it's, it's near enough me. Because when people come to therapy, they almost always think they're the only one that's quite like that. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that, you know, they've read books and they've been on Facebook and they know, hey, depression is really common, but no one's quite had it like I've had. Right. And it's never quite affected anybody the way it's affecting me. So to sit in a room with a therapist who's really accepting of that, but then with other people who say, Hey, that's just how I felt when this happened or when that happened is one of the most, I mean, really, really Jason, I guess I see that as an act of love Mm -hmm. and that in itself, regardless of any therapeutic technique or any, you know, any clever skill thing I can do, Just that presence and that witnessing of someone else's experience, I think is probably the most healing thing. Now, I know if you're listening to this, wanting some advice and takeaways, that kind of doesn't help you. Maybe we can do a bit of that in a moment, but I just think that is so powerful to have somebody else go, hey, I get that. I feel the same sometimes.
0: Yeah. And again, I think it makes it a little bit more real for somebody to just kind of sit there and say, like, well, and and from a neurological standpoint too, like, what's happening chemically in our brain when we feel like someone actually gets us? Like, again, yeah. a counselor, a therapist, they'll tell us what we want to hear because you know there's all kinds of preconceived notions people have about yep. therapists and, and psychotherapy. But when someone up here is experiencing something similar, I think it was um, a book by. Kelly McGonigal, The Upside of Stress, and she really broke down, like, balancing stress hormones in the brain and how, when we feel like we're going through something together with somebody else, that it releases, uh, I think, both oxytocin and dopamine, which can, you know, start to bring down our cortisol levels and everything, and and just almost like you're giving someone, like you say, that expression of love, but it's almost like we're giving them a, a distanced hug a little bit to say, like, oh, thank yep. you, someone, because, and I, I think in a lot of cases, we don't feel like even the people closest to us, like understand what we're going through, especially if they're that close that they're the ones getting affected. If they're the ones getting hurt by our anger and all this, then they're gonna be creating their own narrative of the situation. You're gonna be you know, that child who's afraid of their father and everything, especially from a young age when you have this role that's supposed to be you know, this protector and everything. And now you're afraid of that individual. You're yep. not going to be there to say, you know what, daddy, it's okay. I completely get it. Your boss is probably, you know, a mean man and you can take it out on me. That's fine. Like that's not going to happen. So yeah, definitely. I, I'm I'm starting to see some of this group work in a, in a new light for sure.
2: Yeah.
0: How I- long I- do usually do you find that um, people want to continue with this kind of stuff as, as a maintenance kind of a situation or. Is yeah. It-
1: so, um, i kind of have two different trends there so as a psychotherapist my 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 preference is to do long-term in-depth work Mm -hmm. so very often what will happen is people will come in with you know whatever they're presenting issue but in this case you know anger but you know really my way of thinking is that psychological presentations are invariably the symptom and not the problem. Mm -hmm. So once we identify the problem, and very often, like you were just kind of implying, it's something about our self narrative or our sense of identity, Mm -hmm. then maybe we've got something very big and very deep we work with.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: On the other hand, I I get a load of people who come in and want a quick fix, and they don't want to get be quite so angry. And um, that's, that's enough for them right now. They don't want to do the deeper work, which involves, you know, looking in the mirror and looking at your shadow parts and all the dark parts. So the original group I did, um, was actually just six two hour sessions for 12 hours.
2: Mm.
1: And that was immensely powerful. at shifting something. So what I've definitely found is that a relatively short therapeutic intervention of six to 10 sessions will make a huge shift in most people's, um, reaction around anger. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only people where it doesn't is I guess sometimes where there's significant trauma, because if the trauma's not healed, then it's almost like you're sticking a finger in a wound too often. The anger's going to be there. Um, or you're looking at people who potentially have more significant psychiatric um, diagnoses. So personality disorder level of, I mean, I'm not a big fan on labels, but people will get the, you know, get the words when I use those. Um, for most other people that that 10 week kind of period will make a significant, and I mean a really significant change in their expression of anger.
0: Well, that makes sense. When I think back to what you said earlier about like, right away, we don't have to think about going from 100 to zero, that if we can, if in that six to 10 weeks, you can learn that you can bring yourself from 100 to 80. Now you know what's possible. Now you know that you aren't completely powerless when when some of this stuff starts to come up and, and so on and so forth. But I, I'm remembering, um, I can't remember exactly which book it was that I read this case study in. But I remember there is a, a story of a woman who was overweight for the majority of her life. And as she was in her 40s, she hadn't really had a, um, a significant relationship or romantic relationship. But she decided it was time. It's time to get a little bit healthier and all this. So she started losing some weight. She started attracting some of the attention of some uh, men around her. And she ended up getting a boyfriend. And mm. then the first time that they were in a situation to get intimate she basically like blacked out and when she kind of came to he had scratch marks on her on him and was just like looking at her like looking at her like what the hell just happened you you were possessed or something um but he had some understanding of trauma and stuff he didn't just like run away and not want to deal with her so they they talked about it and a couple more times it happened where when they would get intimate she would almost black out and attack him. So then eventually she ended up going to to the therapy and started going through this whole process and everything. And the case study itself was fascinating. It was a long process. Um, I got into this whole side of her that she had completely, her brain had completely sectioned off. She didn't right. remember any childhood abuse. She, her brain, wasn't ready to deal with it. It was almost like, it was almost like looking at a stroke inside the brain, whereas like a section was just completely separated.
2: Mm.
0: And um it, you know, they kind of came to this conclusion that even her putting weight on through the rest of her life was like a subconscious means of keeping people at a distance. And we're talking something that started from the age of like 10 years old and now she's 40. So to think about, yeah, let's do a, let's do a, a two hour session or something like that, and then we'll get you all patched up and good to go. Yeah, I think sometimes that's a bit of the problem is that we just, we wanted to just, just tell me. And I've had it even with mindfulness when people have um, brought their teens who are angry teens or I do some suicide intervention work as well. And people are coming to speak with me. Well, how, how many sessions do you think this is gonna take? How long is this gonna take for you to fix my kit? Like, well, that is a, that's a big question. But yep. when it gets to the point, so if you're doing the group work and it looks like there needs to be another step, do you yourself um, transition into some one-on-ones or do you have colleagues that you would refer people to?
1: Yeah. I mean, it tends to be colleagues now because my caseload is, mm-hmm. is, is full completely. So it tends to be colleagues. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it you know, it happens that a small number will want to, we'll want to do that. And it tends to be, um, because they've really seen the benefit rather because there hasn't been much movement because there hasn't been that much movement in, in that time, people tend to go, this doesn't work. And you're just a phony, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially when they came angry. Mm -hmm. Um, having said that, you know, I can't actually, I mean, this sounds very grandiose as I say it, but I think it's true is I can't actually think of anybody who stuck eight to 10 weeks, and didn't show lots of improvement
2: Mm -hmm.
1: there will be people who get to three to four weeks and for whatever reason decide this isn't the path they want to take but i genuinely think if people have kind of stuck the distance that they've always made some significant improvement
2: Mm -hmm.
0: well you kind of mentioned at the beginning too about the difference between people who are in that denial stage and are there simply because you know, maybe court order or they're there because a loved one is saying do this or, you know, coming from a place of an ultimatum uh, ultimatum, do this or we're getting a divorce or something like that, like the receptivity of someone in that situation versus coming of their own accord and wanting to actually get help. You know, again, I, I I don't, I don't, I've never been in a session with you, but to me, that would be no reflection on you. But like how, how open you are to actually that change.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. You know, it's easy as a therapist for me to say that. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it's true. Um, you know, and the reality is this, the, the kind of person you're describing, will tend to, in some way think they are better than others. Mm-hmm. They will, in some way, be a little bit paranoid, and that they don't quite trust other people. And they will almost see, almost always see other people as part of the blame, as opposed to part of the solution. Mm. So of course, or a, of course they get angry because all these other people are just ruining their life for them. But until you're able to contact at least a bit of you that says, what's my part in this, then, um, you know, yeah it's difficult people don't necessarily want to engage engaging change they will tend to be the ones that are court ordered right um and yeah they'll tend to be the ones that they do two or three sessions and say this is a load of mm-hmm. crap i'm out of here and of course they're still in the court system right after. um but one of my i don't know if you've ever come across a model called the drama triangle by Stephen cartman
0: vaguely familiar. But go yeah. ahead.
1: You know, I really urge people to Google it if they haven't come across it. Mm-hmm. Because what it really talks about is how we how we co create reoccurring patterns of behavior. So if I'm always getting angry, then what is it I'm doing, not in the moment of anger, but in the build up that mm-hmm. is co creating that scenario. And the most common pattern I see in my in my in my work, and most of my work is with you know quotes ordinary guys as opposed to people who are about to go to prison, mm-hmm. is is this good this idea of wanting to be a good guy. So, you know, people who self-define is, hey, I'm the nice guy in this. You're kind of the neighbor that you want to live by, who will help you out when your car won't start and you'll mow your lawn and all that kind of stuff. Because, hey, mowing the lawn is not something I want to spend my time on. So they have this idea that to be a good guy. And again, you sort of touched on the idea of a narrative of what does it mean to be a a man? There's stuff about being a provider, but also being gentle and taking responsibility. So there's this guy who thinks he's got to do all of that and he does all of that and in the drama triangle we'd call him a rescuer because he's kind of putting other people's needs before himself mm. he doesn't say no to people that's huge he doesn't set boundaries and most of the time everyone's going hey look at jason he's fantastic he'll do out for anybody we love jason he's a great guy and then your wife suddenly picks up on the one job you haven't done
2: mm.
1: It's really important to her. And in your ear, she's Jason. You think you're such a good guy. You help everybody else, but you're bloody useless in our house, aren't you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that moment you change, that narrative you built about yourself gets stripped away. And you change from being someone who is very rescuey to being someone who is very persecutory, i.e., you get angry and you push the other away. That process which I see all the time. It's actually I keep saying I'm going to write a book, that's the book I'm going to write. Mm. I've said it here, I've got to do it now. Um but the problem people come with the problem is about the moment of anger. The problem isn't about the moment of anger. The problem is about the rest of your life when you're not setting your goals, so your boundaries, and when you're not taking account of the cost that this this giving has on you. So it's great to give, you know, I'm I'm big believer in giving I'm a very spiritual person. But you can't give from an empty vessel. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Otherwise, you just burn out. Mm -hmm. So part of being able to do that is also your personal self care, and valuing yourself enough, because actually, when you come from a place that isn't valuing yourself enough, in the first place, there is something inherently false about what you're doing. So you, you end up not getting the benefit that you seek from your, your your kind action.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, that that's so powerful in that vision, because again, I I, with some of the time that we have left, I do want to try to shift gears to the other person in the the anger situation. But it makes me think about this, like straw that broke the camel's back kind of uh, analogy of often just put so much emphasis on the actual what you what you mentioned as a, a symptom, but the manifestation of maybe putting yourself last all the time. And, you know, I remember really thinking about this and I did a lot of research when, I can't remember when it was, but a few years ago when a lot of the shootings in the US or or the police shootings came up in in such a big way. And one of the things that I thought of, especially because at the time I was working with quite a few police officers, Mm. is just, it was mind-blowing. I remember when I was working with uh, the local police force, I asked like, What kind of reset button tactics for pushing the reset button do you have in place if you had an argument with your wife today or, you know, something at home or something completely unrelated to the police force? But then you have to go to work just like everybody else. Like, yeah, okay, we do it sometimes and we see computers getting smashed and we see some of this happen as a manifestation of whatever else is going on. But now we have people who are in a situation where they have some some significant power there and they would all often look at me and like what do you mean reset button like what do you mean you know how do and i i said well how do you switch even between calls if you just came from something that's extremely challenging and testing of your patients and all this kind of stuff and then you pull over a sweet grandma for speeding you know what's in place there to stop that from transferring over like these people are just human beings just like everybody else and yet we we hold them to such a higher standard and again we're we're all vulnerable walking bags of of trauma so i i think about that straw that broke the camel's back and to use that as the bridge to go into the person who is involved in this scenario yes you know how do we how do we approach someone who is now triggered, who is now maybe, or they're not triggered yet, but we know that they're easily triggered when we say like, look, I know you're doing all these things for other people, but can you please empty the garage or go through your stuff or do something like that? Because when they, if, if they do snap, I see us as taking that personally, because the thing that, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, we see that as being like shit. Okay. This is what I did again. And I've done this. So 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 deal with this on the other side of the coin.
1: So, it's it, it it it's really difficult actually to to answer this question without trying to give a bit more nuance, mm-hmm. um, because what I really want to do is to to either emphasise the responsibility of the the angry person to take control of their process, mm-hmm. or I want to talk about a co-created process. Right. There, there's a risk in going to the you know for example, your wife and tried to get her to almost manipulate the situation so that you don't get angry. Cause actually the likelihood is you'll see that and go, what the hell are you manipulating me for? Mm-hmm. I'm not such a monster. Is that how you think of me? And how hey, you get angry about that? Um, I think the big things in communication are about firstly, being very open and clear because what happens when we know we're saying something that is problematic is that we try and we try and soften it so much you actually lose what it is you're trying to say. Right. Uh, I remember way, way back when I was a, a, a manager in my department at work, um, there was a guy with a bit of a body odor problem problem mm-hmm. and it's really hot summer. And I kind of, I was tasked with having the chat and kind of, I, mean, I must've spent 30 minutes of, implying the problem without kind of saying do you know what do you know what mate you're a bit smelly take a bit of the deodorant it's cool which he'd have been fine with but mm-hmm. i did this long spiel and he's like well what are you actually saying
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay okay so i think be be very open and direct in your communication however um I don't know if you've ever seen any of the stuff from the Gottmans in uh, Seattle, I think. So just over the border from you. Um, they they do couples. They're really big on couples counseling. They run one of the big American um, couples training institutes. So what they talk about within the situation where there's conflict is to do a so- what they call a soft startup. Mm. So it's like, Jason, I, know, I, I need to say something to you that's really important, but I know it might upset you. Mm-hmm you're kind of braced. And then nine times out of 10, it's never as bad as what you're braced for. Right? Because we're kind of braced for Oh, my God, you're gonna leave me. Mm-hmm. So can you take the garbage out a bit more often if a I'm relieved that that's all it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, you know, even if it's something a bit bigger, I tend to be, I'm always braced for the worst case scenario. So that's useful. Um, again, as a therapist working with angry couples, really signaling, this is going to be something that's hard for you to hear. Uh-huh. Um, being very upfront, but also being very non blaming and non-judgmental. So again, you, you've given some nice examples of this, that it's not about you made me angry, but Hey, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling triggered when this scenario happens. And maybe this is why, cause maybe it reminds me of my ex-wife or it reminds me of my mom or it reminds me of something else. And Hey, I know you're not her, but if it's just what happens for me in this moment. So that kind of communication that is really, really accounting for both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in transactional analysis, we talk about I'm okay, you're okay, it's a, hey, a catchphrase, that goes back to the 60s. Mm-hmm. But too so, often, we do something that either discounts my okayness, or it discounts your okayness. Mm-hmm. So Suddenly, we get this, this imbalance. And the anger or the anxiety or the depression or whatever, whatever goes wrong between us sits in that imbalance. There's something that says, Hey, this is important for me. So I know I've got to tell you this, otherwise our relationship doesn't work. Mm
2: -hmm. But I also
1: know that it might not be comfortable for you to hear this.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So we're both seen as kind of okay, but also important in this conversation. Does that make sense? Totally.
0: And what I like about this is because, you know, you're talking about people who, believe that they are a good person and they believe that you know and not to say that they're not but they have this um, belief for themselves and they don't want to be in a lot of cases they don't want to be this tyrant they don't want to be in this so if they can get that bracing ahead of time and say hey you i know this is something that you may not want to hear but it's important for me to to say it that could be the slightest pause that can just say okay and I'm ready. You know, there's something that we talk about in mindfulness. That's this trans transition between unconscious unconsciousness, which is just not being aware of what it is that you do half the time. And then yeah. conscious unconsciousness, which is starting to be aware of your patterns, starting to be aware of what you're not aware of. And then yeah. being able to shift into this state of conscious consciousness, that as long as I can get aware of it, I can have some control over it. And then with the goal of potentially going to this state of like unconscious consciousness where i don't even have to think about it i'm in alignment with the way i want to carry myself and so forth but that that line of okay this may be a difficult conversation to me seems like the perfect way of getting me into that conscious consciousness okay now i'm aware that i need to be aware of what i'm saying or how i'm acting and all this kind of stuff and i think that could be a great like this to me goes back we didn't we we very briefly talked about it but that nonviolent communication side of things. And one of the things that I thought about and that I haven't really put in the context of of uh, anger management, but we talk about with suicide intervention, is the way that you even approach the conversation. If your body language, um, I did a, a podcast on here with um, uh, Shauna, and she put it really beautiful, if you're beautifully, if you're approaching a conversation, and my body language is saying, I am uncomfortable with this, you're going to make the other person feel uncomfortable right off the get-go. So if like, look, I have this thing, it's really awkward, it's really uncomfortable, but I gotta ask it, are you having suicidal thoughts? Now, the, le- you know, the things that you're putting out there is, this is an uncomfortable topic, and I'm uncomfortable talking to you about it, which means you should feel uncomfortable talking to me about it. And yeah. I can see that now as being very similar to what you're describing even as like that direct like, okay, so we're going to talk about something that may be a little bit uncomfortable for you, but know that, you know, and it doesn't need to be said, but it's kind of implied based on the way you carry yourself. Know that this is a safe place for you to have your opportunity to voice whatever you need to as well. So I really like that. I think that's a simple thing that we can interject almost immediately if we find ourselves in those situations.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Ah, uh, there's a lot that we've gone through. Um, I I have a list here of like so many other things that I'd want to uh, chat with. Maybe when you get your book out and all that, then we can we could do a part two. And yep. uh, I completely empathize. By the way, I've been writing quotes here my yep. book for like the last four years, and and we're still going. But yep. um, I really appreciate the time that you spent going through all of this stuff. If there was any last little um words of wisdom gold gems anything that you want to put into the airwaves before we part ways
1: yeah so i guess one thing and actually we didn't really touch on this but it's important it's to know that anger is a really normal biological part of our human process getting angry doesn't make you a monster or evil or bad or any of that dialogue that people sometimes come with.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it's it's part of our body's way of staying safe so the flight fight flight system and kind of all that's happening is it's turned up to 11. Mm -hmm. we can learn to dial it down so kind of what i'm saying is you can do this it's not impossible get help
0: Mm -hmm. and i appreciate that because one of the things that we talk about again in, in mindfulness a lot is the fact that everything that your body and mind experience is for your benefit in some way It's like, I like to think of these different components as being misguided friends. Sometimes they're a little overzealous and like, you know, someone steps up at you at the bar or something and they're that friend that's like, whoa, I got your back. Sit, you know, hang out, hang tight. I got your back, I got this situation. And it's that friend that sometimes you gotta be like, okay, calm down, this is all right. But they mean well, it's well-intentioned. And actually, again, I think it was in Kelly McGonigal's Upside of Stress, she talks about when we can even make friends with our, Stress responses and the way that it manifests. When we make friends with ourself in those situations, that we can actually even change the way that we're uh, physiologically reacting as well. So that's a that's great. I'm glad that you you touched on that before we parted ways because there's probably a lot of people that do feel really isolated um, in those kinds of situations and start to create these narratives of I'm a monster, I'm awful just because you know what am I seeing in the eyes of the people that I'm angry in front of, but mm. If people wanted to, I know you said that your caseload is is quite uh, full up and everything, but if people wanted to find more about you, where's the best place to do that from?
1: Yeah. So um, I guess my website, uh, which is www.emergefromanger.co.uk.
0: Beautiful. And then there's that Facebook group as well. I guess people could.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Anger Management Support Group on Facebook. That's you- what it says on the team.
0: Yeah, I found it very easily, so I'm sure people wouldn't have a a hard time. Nathan, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with me today. And uh, yeah, I'd love to stay in touch, especially uh, get a copy of that book, maybe a signed copy one day. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks so much, Nathan. Uh, Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Higher Potential Living podcast. If you would like to learn more about Higher Potential Living and the services we offer, please visit www.higherpotentialliving.com. We offer different online courses, in-person courses, mindfulness and meditation retreats, And we have a variety of different coaches that are there to help you with anything that you might be going through. So please check us out. You can also help support the work we do by subscribing to this podcast anywhere you're listening, and of course, sharing it and telling your friends all about it. Thank you so much and have a great day.